you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. Uh, we certainly hope that you will consider Community Baptist Church as a home. And uh, guys, I just need to say this. I have never been as proud as I've been this week in this church family. We ministered to this community in a special way. And it could not have been done without every single one of you. For those of you who prayed, thank you for praying. For those of you who rolled up your sleeves and came out and worked, thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Many of you stepped outside your comfort zone, shared the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. Who would have ever thunk? Uh, it was a great week of ministry. I mentioned to, during Sunday school hour, in the eight years I've been here, I, I, I got to say, um, it, it was, it, from my perspective, it was one of the uh, best weeks that I've seen this church put forth in an effort in reaching the community for Christ. And my seniors, oh, I cannot tell you how awesome it was to work our tails off ready to fall over dead in this heat and then come into that cool AC air-conditioned kitchen and have a home-cooked meal or even brought-in delivery was awesome. You kept us fed and uh, that kept our energy up. And I'm telling you, everybody working together, we did a lot for the cause of Christ. That's just the start. We must pray for every seed that was planted every seed that was watered, that God would bring the increase. And uh, I do believe this is just the beginning. Some pluses that have come out of it. Um, I'm going to keep Dr. Shook on the hook uh, and keep him accountable. We were riding doing the, uh, the water blitz, and a lot of people said that was one of their favorite things. And you, you would, just riding around and seeing some people working a tobacco field, how thirsty they are, jumping out and giving them a bottle of water. I'm talking ice-soaked, cold, like you'd see in some you know, water commercial, <laughs> thirst quenching, and then give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was wonderful to share that. Dr. Shook said, hey, you know, we used to do, and he gave us some creative ideas of how they would leave popcorn in break rooms at businesses, or we talked about how dozen donuts into the uh, teacher's break room at schools and just putting a note from Community Baptist Church, thank you for what you do in the community, stuff like that. And I said, hey, that sounds like you need to be our evangelistic outreach coordinator. <laughs> so he said, hey, I'll do it. So he's going to do it, Lord willing. Y'all pray for him. And what the plan will be, this is just sort of, in, and it's all kind of coming together. It's a God thing. But basically we're looking at one Saturday for one hour and he'll come up with a creative outreach. So pray for the creative ideas that we can let the community know that we love them, that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ and represent the Lord to our community. So, uh, so anyway, excited about that. That's one of the things that's come out of that, but I appreciate all the effort, all the work that went into this week. Take your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter eight, Hebrews chapter eight. And uh, I know it was mentioned earlier that uh, our care group is meeting tonight at the Quinn's. And if you're in the Pridgen care group, you're combined with us. So, Quinn, what's your address? 4194, 4194 Disco, Path. Disco Path. I like it. <laughs> so bring your dancing shoes. No, please don't. Please don't. 
You should have had 70s theme night, man. You could have been ready for it. But, uh, but no, it is Asian theme tonight. So Asian food. So if you bring some dish, bring some Asian cuisine. All right? So looking forward to that. I hope you had some leftover sushi. I saw the picture uh, last night. Anyway. Guys, I know you were chomping at the bits to get here this week because you just could not get enough of comparing covenant theology and dispensational theology. People everywhere are asking. People everywhere are saying, give us more theology. Well, thank you. Thank you. We will. In uh, talking to some of the care group leaders, I realized a lot of people said, why are we even studying this? Like, Why? And in our care group last week, there was some great discussion as to why. Just think about this for a second. Do you realize at one time in our country, if you learned to read, if you had any kind of higher education, it was due to the scriptures? Dr. Shook uh, shared a, a quote, uh, and he referenced how at one time, theology was considered the queen of science. Now, in a day where science is everything, the sad thing is, in some circles, it even trumps theology, which is not the case. If you want good science, you've got to start with the scriptures. But it was the queen of science. But yet, look at everything you pour your heart into. Think about everything you raise your child to get that higher education, get that good paying job, everything we pour into our kids, and yet the most important thing is neglected, the Holy Scriptures. And I even confessed to my care group uh, last week that as I study and prepare for these past two weeks, I've feel so inadequate. I was reading a sermon from the 1800s, and it was just some lay guy who, was, who delivered a sermon, and as I was reading through his sermon, just the deepness of this, this farmer preaching and teaching theology, how rich his understanding of the Scriptures were. And to know that children, when they got their education in those days when our country was being settled, it was from the Word of God. And yet we do not understand the Word of God today. That's why this is important. The Bible says that we are to study to show ourselves approved. A workman who can rightly divide the word of truth so that we're not ashamed. One day we will stand before a holy God. And my science education, my math education, my you name the field, is that really going to have eternal bearing? It may, it may not. Depends on what we've done. Have we used the platform in which those educational things prepared us for? Ministry. Because we're all in ministry. No matter what field you go into, you are in a field of ministry because you represent Jesus Christ as a follower of Christ. But growing in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That's for all of us, not just preachers. And so if you feel like this is really over your head, then you know what? We don't need to lower the bar. We just need to jump higher. <laughs> not in our own strength, but by the grace of God. God wants you. He's already told you what He wants of you. And what He wants of you and me is to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. How much more is there to be drawn out from that deep, rich well that we hold in our hands called the Scriptures? So if you feel inadequate in the subject, it's okay. Your pastor does too. But I'm tired of staying in the kiddie pool, guys. I want to get in the deep end. And so we're going to wade out into the deep end. Don't worry. If you need a life preserver, just, you know, somebody will throw one out to you and help you, hopefully, okay? And that's what we do in our small groups. Hopefully in that setting we can discuss things. And that's where I want you to ask questions. If you don't know, you don't understand, it goes, you know, ask in that setting. And if we don't have that answer in that setting, then we need to search that out. It helps us to grow in our relationship so we can understand better. With that said, we're going to continue here in Hebrews. And I just want to read the second section and uh, go from there. And Seth, would you mind grabbing me a little water bottle somewhere? You may have to search high and low. You may have to run over to the deck's house. I don't know. But anyway, I actually start with the gym first. And um, look, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 8, in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And what he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You know, in the book of Hebrews, he's writing predominantly to the Hebrew audience. There are believers there. There are non-believers there who are wanting to go back into the Jewish tradition. The whole point up to this is the Hebrew writer is saying Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than, than Aaron. And now he's doing the comparative of the old Mosaic law. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31. And he says, you remember what your own prophet Jeremiah said? He said that there was coming a time when there would be a new covenant. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. You remember in Luke, you remember in the upper room, in the Last Supper, and the, he said, this is my body broken for you, the bread. You remember the cup, the wine, this is my blood. And he said, 
That, this, this was representing the cross, the crucifixion that was to come. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Everything we saw in the tabernacle, Christ is a fulfillment. We just talked about that. We talked about how he is the great high priest in chapter 8 in the first part. He is now in the heavenly tabernacle, if you will, interceding on our behalf. And the earthly that was given to Moses was simply types and shadows of that which is in the heavenly. And so there's this fulfillment, the shadow and type, Jesus Christ is the substance. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate that. Gentleman and a scholar. Thank you. Well, I said get a little bottle. He did, didn't he? <laughs> hey, you want this sermon to be short, don't you? All right, I got you. We'll see what we can do about that. Thank you, brother. So we have all these things leading up to chapter 8. And we get into chapter 8 and he's making the argument, Jesus Christ is a great high priest. It's finished. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's done. We don't need to go back into the old Mosaic practices. We don't need that anymore. He's fulfilled it. And he alludes to this new covenant. So as we go through the comparative theologies, you have to decide which set of glasses are you going to wear when it comes to seeing the Scriptures. Now, keep in mind, these are men in the framework that they are working through the Scriptures. They see patterns, and they make note of these patterns. And so these have become teaching tools to help us in seeing the Scriptures. So, as we go through this, keep it in mind, we're weighing this because in chapter 8 of Hebrews, this is where the whole idea of Four major views that we're going to talk about. We're going to hit on two major themes in covenant theology and dispensational theology. But there's four major views that you, you've got to choose from when it comes to Hebrews 8. So that's why I want to educate you on which view are we going to hold to. Because it is imperative that you find your place in your understanding of how you see the scriptures because that's going to affect how you see the end time. Now keep in mind all four may be wrong. And we'll find out when we get there. But I believe God has given us His Word so that we can rightly divide it so that we won't be ashamed when we get there. And so, prophecy is important to you and me because how then shall I live? If I know what the future holds, it should affect how I'm living today. And here's the thing that all four views hold to that we agree with. Jesus Christ is coming back. Are you ready? All four views hold to both dispensa uh, whether dispensation or covenant theology all hold to this. You are saved one way through the person of Jesus Christ. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. On the main and the plain, we agree. Alright? So we don't we can vigorously debate. We don't need to divide over it, but we need to study, show ourselves approved. Let's look forward. Recap. We talked about theological covenants last time. We talked about the CR, the CW, and the CG. We talked about covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption, remember, you've got a timeline from, from, from that 
I'm going to help out my TV man. Crane, I'm going to borrow your music. Sure enough, I'm going to mess this up and you won't know where to be on the last. All right, here we go. This is the beginning of time. And this is the end of time. Right here. Right, y'all see my timeline? Those at home can't see that one, but just trust me. The end of time's out there somewhere. All right. CR was before time. There was a covenant made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit called the covenant of redemption. This is what covenant theology teaches you. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, but this is what they teach you. That between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they came up with this God's elect. We will send forth, the Father sent the Son into the world to save God's predestined elected people. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But Adam came onto the scene in the beginning of time. And he came in under what's known as the covenant of works. Choose tree of not a choose the tree of life, live in your perfect state forever. But don't choose the tree of good knowledge, of, of a good and evil tree of knowledge, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. One rule. And man fail. And Adam is our federal headship. He represented us. You know, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, President Trump, in a sense, is a federal head of, the, of America. He represents us, whether you like it or not. He can make a decision that will affect every one of you, right? So he is a federal headship of you. Now, we have scripture that says, you better pray for the man, you better support the man, like him or not. Unless he starts telling you to go against the very revealed will of God, then we do as Peter and John did. Am I to obey God or am I to obey man? You be the judge. We're going to obey God. Federal headship. Adam is your federal head. When Adam fell, he represented you. Covenant theology, Reformed theology teaches this. Okay? Covenant of works, because of the fall of man, ended. And God introduced, at that point, what's known as the covenant of grace. And that goes all the way to the end of time. And that simply says this. God says, I'm going to help you out. Because you obviously don't know how to obey. You obviously now have a problem called sin that originates in the heart. And because of that, you're unable to help yourself. You are dead spiritually. So when we're born, because Adam fell into sin, and therefore death has passed to every man, we're all born dead spiritually in our trespasses and sin against God. Dead men don't do anything. God has to do something to give us life. He did so in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent His one and only begotten Son into the world to save the world. That's good news. God came to rescue sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that by putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can be born again. The Spirit of God works because remember, before the beginning of time, God had a people. Covenant theology says, I have my people of Israel. 
and I have my people of the church, but they're all one people meet at the cross. Messiah saves them all. Covenant of works between God and Adam. Covenant of grace between God and elect sinners. Covenants. God's covenants. There's the CW. Not the show. Not the channel. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. That's what it looks like on the chart. Now the covenants that you see in Scripture, like the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Davidic covenant, those are just covenants that build upon each other. They don't cancel out. They build upon each other. They build upon each other. That's what covenant theology teaches. To the point that we come to the Hebrews 8 that we just read, and now there's a new covenant in fulfillment of everything that preceded. With that said, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, again, has these seven periods laid out in the scriptures. Dispensationalists say, look, we believe that according to the scriptures, there was creation. Man was in innocence. He failed. There was a judgment. That began a new dispensation. The fall of man, conscience, the flood, human government, call of Abraham, promise, law of Moses, law. The cross came. There was grace. And then the second coming is the kingdom. Thousand year, millennial reign upon the earth. We're going to get a little closer into this. Dispensationalism. We talked about it last time. If you want to know more, go back and look at that. But we're going to look ahead at some other stuff. We talked about why literalism last time. Why do you interpret the scripture literally? By the way, here's a good takeaway, and I'll sum it up in the end. The problem I have with covenant theology is they do a little bit of both in their hermeneutics. Herman who? Hermeneutics. It's basically the art of interpreting scripture, the science of interpreting scripture. How are you going to, what's, what, what's the lens you're going to use to interpret scripture? I'm going to give you a better definition here in a little while on hermeneutics. Or actually tonight, probably in your care group, I'll give all you leaders one. Um, by the way, don't let me forget, i print your copy off tonight, before you, well, this morning before you leave. Um, there are at least two reasons why literalism is the best way. Dispensationalism is a literal interpretation of scripture. Okay? Don't confuse that with wooden literal. Dispensationalists aren't wooden literal. Remember the Pharisees said, he's going to destroy the temple. He said he was going to destroy this building. And in three days he'd rebuild it. <laughs> That's a joke. Come on. It took forever to build this building. They were interpreting Jesus' words literal, wooden literal. But Jesus was speaking literal of his body. Right? And he did literally raise it from the dead three days later. Don't confuse wooden literal with literalism. Literalism, uh, um, again, philosophically, it's the best way to view Scripture. First, philosophically, the purpose of language itself requires that we interpret words literally. Language was given by God for the purpose of being able to communicate. Words are vessels of meaning. We live in a day, a postmodern world, where I'm serious. People will say, how do you know that's a pew? You say it's a pew. But just because you say it's a pew don't mean it's a pew. I think it's a window. In my world, that's a window. And if they argue that, tell them, well, cool then, jump out of it. See how that works for you. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll run into a wooden literal, right? But that's, I'm serious. People will argue this today. Well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. 
That's true for you, but that's not true for me. We say, you know what? I believe it's true if you stand out in the middle of the highway in front of a Mack truck at 60 miles per hour, it'll probably hit you and it'll probably hurt. Do you believe that? Hey, go try it. No, don't do that. If you're going to do that, share the gospel first, though, at least. The second reason is biblical. Every prophecy, this is important, every prophecy about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was fulfilled literally. Literally. Jesus' birth, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, all occurred exactly as the Old Testament predicted. The prophecies were literal. This is one of the main reasons why Community Baptist Church has been a dispensationalist church over the years. We interpret the scriptures literally. There's two ways to read scripture. Exegetically, or you can do a method called eisogesis. All right? I'm going to explain those two fancy words, $2 words. Eisogesis means you pour meaning into the scripture. I pour meaning into the scripture. That's eisegesis. We don't do that. That's bad hermeneutics. We do exegesis. We take out of the scripture the meaning and we use the scripture to interpret scripture. Context, context, context. Exegesis, exegetical to take out from the scriptures. We don't do eisegesis. We do exegetical. And that's the type of teaching we do. Exegesis. All right. So, um, there is no non-literal fulfillment of Messianic prophecies in the New Testament. This argues strongly for the literal method. If a literal interpretation is not used in studying the Scriptures, there's no objective standard by which to understand the Bible. Each person would be able to interpret the Bible as he saw fit. Biblical interpretation would devolve into what this passage says to me. Well, I think this part where they're out in the desert, to me it means sometimes you get yourself in a hot situation and you got to look out for the dangers of the world because there's snakes out there, y'all, and they'll bite you. And so you better, um, you better carry you a big stick and if you got some gold to put on it, then you can hit them with it because gold, don't, it, it, it's a good material. That's not what that means. That's what it means to me. I'm sticking with that. No, I don't care if that's what it means. I don't want to know what it means to you. I want to know what the author meant. What was the meaning of the author's writing? You know? Can you imagine? I know we do this with art. You know, a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, it's not. It's either beautiful or it's ugly. <laughs> I don't care what you think, right? There is a true author of that painting. Maybe the author painted some oak trees in an orchard. And you say, oh yeah, you see all the people of Afghanistan here, they're hurting, they're suffering. And you're the artist. No, it's an oak tree in the orchard. Well, that's your truth, not my truth. I painted the picture. I know what it's a painting of. Well, aren't you pushy? But guys, this is the way we go to Scripture. And you'll hear people do this to Scripture all the time. And that's no, that's deadly dangerous. I don't care what... I think it says, I want to know what the author intended and what was being said. Again, the reason why we should study Scripture 
and understand what the author meant. What this passage says to me is not the method. Sadly, this is already the case in much of what's so-called Bible study today. Be careful of that. Be careful of that. All right, I know you can't see this. I'm going to try and help you understand this. Jimmy Carr said, I don't know why you put your jacket on. You ain't going to keep it on. He's right. He knows me well. All right, here we go. So, by the way, I am painting with broad strokes today, guys. Understand this. Dean and I can tell. Look, you're getting a survey of seminary type stuff here, okay? I understand that. But it is an overview. And also, please realize that I am presenting in some of these things straw man arguments that are easily torn down, but I'm just trying to give you a big picture. I mean, we don't have time to go into the full wrestling out of everything, so I'm giving you an overview, all right? So please understand that up front. If you hold to one of these and it's misrepresented, please come and talk to me because my, my intent is to do the best in presenting these uh, as clear as possible, but know that I am doing more of an overview, big picture. Dispensationalism recognizes the need for the illumination of the Holy Spirit and approaches Scripture seeking the consistent and literal and normal meaning of the text. In other words, the grammatical and the historical method is what dispensationalism uses, as opposed to spiritualizing or allegorizing. He who spiritualized tells the most lies, something like that, and what they were, the saying used to be. Okay? If the text doesn't call for it to be spiritualized, then don't spiritualize it. But again, some methods, uh, lenses of interpretation will spiritualize the text. That's dangerous because that's subjective. Who gave you the right to give the meaning if you're not the author? Well, I have the Holy Spirit, brother. Well, then why is it interpreted this way from you, but interpreted different from this other believer. Spiritualizing text is dangerous, so be careful with that. Dispensationalism is opposed to spiritualizing and allegorizing. Its strength is using a consistent hermeneutic. And even people on both sides of the fence, whether no matter if you're covenant theologian, uh, reform theologian, dispensationalism, whatever camp you're coming from, most will give credit to dispensationalists that they are the most in the literal interpretation. When it comes to the camps, dispensationalists get that award as being the most literal in interpretation. Covetalism. I had a hard time. I had to ask my wife twice how to say that word. Covetalism. I didn't get it right then. Anyway, you see it. Utilizes a notion of an alliance or a covenant that humans are obligated to. Two covenants are assumed, the works covenant and the grace covenant. Remember, we talked about that. There's a third now, the covenant of redemption, but that's eternity past. As far as man goes, covenant of works, covenant of grace, which are theological grids placed upon, uh-oh, I said Jesus, placed upon Scripture to find and explain meaning. It applies a dual hermeneutic in that it allegorizes prophecy while it's literal in other areas. Hebrews 8. Here's a new covenant. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah. But let's see what Jeremiah really said. Hold your spot. Everybody go to Jeremiah. 
31. Okay. Verse 31 of 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Does it say the house of the church? So now then I have to spiritualize that text in order for it to apply to the church. Is the church taking the place of Israel? Is the church spiritual Israel? See, these are the things you've got to wrestle through. But this is one of the potential dangers. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. But when we go down the road of covenant theology, prophecy in these situations becomes spiritualized and allegorized oftentimes in order for the New Testament to fit with the Old Testament. Just be aware of that. So, allegory. Characters and events are to be up understood as representing other things and symbolically express a deeper meaning. Origen introduced this method. Augustine codified it and Catholicism championed it. It's kin to covenant theology with regard to prophecy. Progressive dispensationalism may be a, a, a move in this direction via its complementary hermeneutic. And again, I won't know if I necessarily agree with that statement, but again, worth noting. Charismatic. A lot of times when you hear me reference the charismatic, I realize, again, I'm making broad strokes, guys. Sometimes it doesn't fit. I'm not talking about them if it doesn't fit. Okay, I know i got some good theologically sound brothers who consider themselves under the umbrella, but as a whole, understand what the hermeneutic of charis uh, the charismatic movement is. The challenge here is a lack of any clear hermeneutic. Since ongoing revelation often supersedes what is written, this experience-oriented movement in practice elevates assumed fresh revelation. The influence of word faith and dominion thinking is paramount instead of the historical text. So in other words, they'll read an Old Testament text that specifically was written to that culture, to those people, for that time. And they will pull from that some type of experience, a revelation, a new insight, never discovered before sometimes, right? There's, again, I realize I'm making broad strokes here. Here's the point I want you to know. That one is more subjective than objective. It's more subjective than objective. Alright, moving along. First thing, we're going to go back and forth here. This is like a little ping pong hour right here real quick. We're going to go back and forth between covenant theology and dispensationalism. I'm going to move fast because I know you don't want a third week of this. So, be patient. God's people. God's people in covenant theology this is the view of covenant theology. I'm going to go yellow and red. If you see yellow, it's covenant theology. If you see red, it's dispensationalism. Number one, God's people in covenant theology. God has one people represented by the saints in the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament area, of the Testament era. One people, covenant theology says. No difference between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. They're one people. 
You have redeemed here, you have redeemed there. God's people in dispensational theology. God has two peoples. Let me clarify. Israel in the Old Testament was the vehicle in which he worked with. It was a vehicle of functionality. And now the church is that new vehicle that he's functioning through. However, they are one people in that they came the same way through the cross. I'll talk about that under salvation here in a second. But as far as in dealing in a time, in an administration, he dealt with Israel. The new covenant, we'll get into that in a second, is applicable in one sense, soteriologically, that's a fancy word for salvation, with the New Testament church. But he's not done with Israel. Israel is an earthly people and the church is a heavenly people. Maybe that's simple for you, right? God's plan. God's plan for his people in covenant theology, God has one people, the church, for whom he has one plan. See, they would say the church is Israel and the church is the New Testament. They lump them together in covenant theology. He has one plan, one purpose, for whom he has one plan in all ages since Adam to call out his people into one body in both the Old and New Testament ages. God's plan for his people, dispensational theology. Dispensationalists hold that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program and that the Old Testament promises to Israel have not been transferred to the church. Covenant theology says, yeah, the promises to Israel have passed on and are being fulfilled spiritually in the church. The dispensationalist says, no, 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 no. The promises made to Israel will come to pass for Israel. It's on a timeout bow. Hold. That branch is broken off. We're going to graft in a wild branch, Romans 11. And now we're dealing in the church age, time period of the church age, time period of grace. But that's going to come to a close. Time of the Gentiles will end. And then he's going to turn his attention back on Israel in the great tribulation period. And they will be grafted back in. And it'll be a big kumbaya in the millennial kingdom. All right? So, dispensationalism teaches that the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament for land, many descendants and blessings will be ultimately fulfilled in the thousand-year period spoken of in Revelation 20. Dispensationalists believe that Jesus, that just as God is in, the age, in this age focusing His attention on the church, He will again in the future focus His attention on Israel. And again, what we just talked about. Uh, you can see Daniel for more about that. Third thing, God's plan of salvation. How do both camps deal with salvation? God's plan of salvation and covenant theology. God has one plan of salvation. For all His people, since the time of Adam, the plan is one of grace. Being an outworking of the eternal covenant of grace. Remember? Back here, covenant of redemption. They, they say that that's the, the plan is being worked out, the eternal covenant of grace comes in this time period and you're either still in the first Adam trying to work your way to heaven and your works are right of, of righteousness are filthy rags, you're going to fall short. You're either in the old Adam or you're in the new Adam, which is the covenant of grace and comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, notice the commonality. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. We agree with that. We agree with that. God's plan of salvation and dispensational theology. God has only one plan of salvation. Woo, we all agree on that. Dispensationalists believe that salvation has always been by grace, through faith alone, in God in the Old Testament. Again, pointing to the Messiah. He's coming. Jesus is coming. And uh, specifically in God the Son, 
You know, Hebrews 1 started in the earlier days. God spoke this way. He now speaks to us through his son. And he's like, so the point is this. We all get to glory through the cross. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. Whether you're a covenant theologian or whether you're dispensationalist, we all go through the same door. Hallelujah. All right. Eternal destiny. Eternal destiny for God's people in covenant theology. God has put one place for his people. God has but one place for his people. Since he has but one people, one plan for his people, and one plan of salvation, his people will be in his presence for eternity. Eternal destiny for God's people in dispensational theology. There is a disagreement among dispensationalists regarding the future state of Israel and the church. So just know that. But many believe that the church will sit with Christ on his throne in the new Jerusalem. We looked at that scripture the other week, so I hold to that because scripture says it. During the millennium, as he rules over the nations, while Israel will be the head of the nations of the earth. Ah, fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31. House of Judah, house of Israel. Fulfills all the other Old Testaments when it speaks of the prophecies of how they will rule over the nations. Someone will sit on the throne of David. Guys, that's got to happen. I really believe that's got to happen because the scripture says it's got to happen. And when we look at... The saints coming, because Scripture talks about the church coming back with Christ. After the rapture, we go to be with Him. Woo, lamb's feast. Yeah, we eat up, have a party. Come back, because there's a lot of mass been going on on the earth, because God's turned His attention back to Israel. And so they're going to, two out of every three is going to die. As opposed to the one out of three that happened in World War II. Two out of three is going to, it's going to be a, you thought, you thought Hitler's situation was bad. It's coming. It's going to be worse for the, for the Jewish people. God's going to deal with them in the great tribulation period, but then we're going to come back at the second coming, not the rapture, the second coming. And he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Those are all battle for the great battle of Armageddon. He's going to step down on the foot of Mount Olives, split the earth, speak, and they're going to all just fall back dead. Except for those who during that time period have put their faith and trust, recognizing Jesus was the Messiah that they crucified. And then Israel will be head of the nations because there will be many 12,000 plus from every tongue, tribe, and nation that will come forth through the great tribulation clothing themselves in white robes because they've heard the 144,000 gospel preachers preaching throughout the world and they will be saved. Innumerable amount. You won't be able to number how many people get saved during the suffering of Jacob's trouble of the, the, the great tribulation on earth. That's what dispensationalism teaches. The church. The birth of the church in covenant theology, the church existed prior to the New Testament era, including all the redeemed since Adam. Pentecost was not the beginning of the church, covenant theologians say. No, no, the church has always been. But rather than empowering, they said that the empowering of the New Testament manifestation of God's people, that's what took place at Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came. So there was an empowering, you know, but the birth of the church has always been. God's chosen remnant has always been. That's the way they would interpret that with their lenses. The birth of the church in dispensational theology, the church was born on the day of Pentecost and did not exist in history until that time. The church, the body of Christ, is not found in the Old Testament and Old Testament saints are not part of the body of Christ. 
Okay? You were in the Old Testament. You were looking for the coming of the Messiah. You're looking for the coming of the Messiah. When you died, you went to paradise. You were in Abraham's bosom, right? There was a holding cell, if you will, dispensationalists may say. There was a place awaiting the Messiah. Jesus died on the cross. He ascended. Where'd he go? He went to lead the captives captive. That lead them out, those captives that were being held. That's why you see people raised from the dead, walk the streets, there, the earthquake, the sky turns black. All this happened at the cross. And then he, he later ascends to heaven. But the Old Testament saints were awaiting the Messiah. The church, the body of Christ, is not found in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints are not part of the body of Christ. Dispensational argument. Christ's first coming. Christ came to die for our sins and to establish a new Israel, the New Testament manifestation of the church. This continuation of God's plan placed the church under a new manifestation of the same covenant of grace. The kingdom that Jesus offered was the present spiritual and invisible kingdom. Some covenantalists, especially post-millennialists, also see a physical aspect in the kingdom. All right? Um, I know I'm going through this fast, guys, but uh, if you want me to send you this, I can Christ came to establish the messianic kingdom. Some dispensationalists believe that this was to be an earthly kingdom in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Israel. If the Jews had accepted Jesus' offer, this earthly kingdom would have been established immediately. Some dispensationalists argument, argue that. I used to teach that. I don't believe that anymore. God doesn't have a plan B. This presents to me, in my opinion, like a plan B. Oh, the Jews rejected it. Well, let's just pass the torch on to the Gentiles then. This is one of those, I think the problem's in the question. Well, what if the Jews would have accepted Jesus as Messiah? Would the kingdom have been ushered in then? Well, again, you're, you're throwing a hypothetical that's not really a fair question. God's plan was and is what God's plan is. So I would disagree with that part of dispensationalism. You can see me later. If you disagree with me, we can you know, bring your Bible. We'll reason through it. Other dispensationalists believe that Christ did establish the kingdom in some form. Aha, I do believe this. Because those who are born again, the Spirit of God indwells them. They become a part of the kingdom of God. We, we really hit on this in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to go back and hear about the parable of the mustard seed and the birds landing in the bushes and all that kind of stuff, we talked about that one. So in some form, the church participates. But the earthly kingdom awaits the second coming of Christ to the kingdom. Guys, do you know you're expanding God's kingdom this week? We were expanding God's kingdom. Was it an earthly kingdom? No, it was a spiritual kingdom. Every time a soul is saved, they become a part of God's kingdom. So there is, in that sense, a form of the kingdom being grown. But an earthly kingdom will one day be on the earth. And we will sit on His throne with Him at His second coming and rule and reign with Him and the Israel nation will lead the nations in an earthly sense. So, um, Christ always intended the cross before the crown. Christ always intended the cross before the crown. So that's why I don't, the whole game plan B, uh-uh. So, all right, the fulfillment of the new covenant. Um, let me skip through these, because I, I see what time it is. Uh, again, if you want these, I'll be glad to send this to you. Um, how the millennium is viewed, um, I kind of hit, well, let me just hit this one. Historically, covenant theology has been either amillennial, 
What does amillennial believe? Now again, that partial form, they do believe that the kingdom, all right, um, the kingdom to be present and spiritual, and they actually believe that it's just going to keep growing, it's going to get better and better. A lot of amillennialists think the world's just getting better and better. <laughs> you can tell that by turning on the news, huh? And that eventually it's just going to usher in God's, God's second coming. Now, I think this is potentially a little dangerous in time because if you're a dispensationalist, you believe there's an antichrist coming who will establish himself as God come. So I could see if it were possible even the elect being deceived. That's why I'm a little leery of this teaching in churches because not everybody that sits in a pew is born again. And if you aren't here, if you're left here when others go to the Lamb's Supper, you may buy into this Antichrist as being a fulfillment of amillennialism teaching and that God has come in the flesh to establish millennial. Dispensationalism teaches the first three and a half years is peaceful. It's utopia. Peace, peace. It's almost like a little heaven on earth. And then about three and a half years into it, the Antichrist is revealed for who he is, the devil himself, and that's when God's wrath is poured out upon an unrepentant people because they had pleasure in unrighteousness and would not receive the love of the truth. My concern, just posting, that's my commentary, all right? So note that, that was Jeremy's commentary, all right? You check it. All right, in recent years, some covenant theologians have been premillennial. So see, there is a shift in covenant theology. Again, I'm making broad strokes. So there, if, you're, if you're sitting here and you're a covenant theologian, you say, well, I don't believe that. I'm a premillennialist. There are some believing that there will be a future manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. That's called historic premillennialism. However, God's dealings with Israel will be in connection with the church, they would say. Postmillennialists believe that the church is bringing the kingdom now with Israel ultimately to be made a part of the church. Again, I know this is drink from the fire hose. Here we go. How does dispensationalism, all, disp all dispensationalists are premillennialists. What does that mean, premillennialists? They believe that, again, the coming of Christ, second coming of Christ is prior to the millennium. Now, that doesn't mean pre-tribulationalist premillennialism. I'll tell you what that is in a second. But premillennialism says Prior to the millennial kingdom, Christ will come physically upon the earth and establish his kingdom. All dispensationalists are premillennialists, though not necessarily pre-tribulationalists. Again, that means there's a rapture of the church. Not all dispensationalists believe their church is taken away and then there's seven years of trouble on earth. But they all do believe Jesus is coming back prior to the thousand years. Hopefully y'all understood that. Premillennialists of this type believe that God will again turn to the nation of Israel apart from his work with the church and that there will be a thousand-year period of Christ's reign on David's throne in accordance with and in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So, second coming, Christ's the covenant theologians, Christ's coming will be to bring final judgment and the eternal state. That's all that's going to happen next on their timetable. Christ's coming, judgment, and eternal state. Those who are premillennial assert that a millennial period will precede the judgment and eternal state. Postmillennialists believe that the kingdom is being established by the work of God's people on earth until the time when Christ will bring it to completion at his coming. 
So post-millennialists believe you know, you're, you know, th that he'll come at the end of that millennium, not at the beginning of that millennium. Second coming is viewed in dispensational theology. Most dispensationalists believe that the rapture will occur first, then a tribulation period followed by the second coming of Christ with the saints in the thousand-year reign of Christ, after which there will be a judgment in the eternal state. So what? I know you've all fell asleep and you're saying, so what? So what? Dispensationalism keeps Israel and the church distinct. That's important. The distinction comes from a system of literal interpretation of Scripture where words are interpreted in their normal or plain meaning. It does not spiritualize nor allegorize the text. The strength, if dispensationalism is its consistently literal or plain interpretation of Scripture. This includes prophecy. Somebody's alarm's going off. The underlying purpose of God in His program is His own glory, as opposed to covenant theology, which sees salvation as the underlying purpose. Now, I'm going to disagree with this statement a little bit, though I believe it's a false sense of people will oftentimes in covenant the theology and even Reformed theology they will say, oh, it's all about God's glory, it's all about God's glory, it's all about God's glory, but they always focus on the elect, the elect, the elect, which is very anthropocentric, I and mean, it's very man-centered. Even though it sounds very God-centered, be careful of that, false humility in that, can be, again, I'm just talking broad strokes, talking broad strokes, but there's, even though they say it's for God's glory, a lot of times it's more central on the salvation issue. It's more about the salvation issue than it is truly about uh, God. To God be the glory. For this reason, the three most basic dispensations are emphasized. I, 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 and you can see this guy, he, he, you can tell where he's at. Let me put it to you in a joke. If I lost you, tune back in. A dispensationalist will say about a covenant theologian, we're all dispensationalists. The question is, how many dispensations do you believe in? Some of you didn't get that. I'm going to say it again. Dispensationalists would say to a covenant theologian, we're all dispensationalists. God deals in a certain time period, certain administration. The question is how many? We believe seven. You believe covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Oh, so you believe in three dispensations. Anyway, it's a Bible nerd joke. All right. We're almost done. We're almost done. All right, here we go. Four views of new covenant. I'm telling you, we're almost done. This is good. This is meat. This is what I saw. It's all coming into culmination. Get this. Four views of new covenant. View number one. This is why Hebrews 8, what we read in the beginning. Remember a long time ago when we read that? This is what's either you've got to take away from Hebrews 8. The church has replaced Israel as the participant in the new covenant. Because he said, here's a new covenant, quoting Jeremiah, to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. I make a new covenant with them. So if you hold to covenant theology, then you have to say, well, then, it, then the church, in a sense, has replaced Israel. And we talked about that the other day. Again, not exactly a fair representation, but in essence, there is a sense of truth to that. Israel is fulfilling, I mean, the church is fulfilling Israel's promises. That's one view. Second view, the new covenant is with the nation of Israel only. So when you read Hebrews 8, People like John MacArthur would say, this isn't a new covenant for the church. This is a promise to Israel. Never was a promise to the church. The new covenant's not a promise to the church. It is in salvation, 
But the land, the seed, the blessing, that's still for Israel. And so even though he's a dispensationalist of such, he would say, no, the covenant, the new covenant, you read in Hebrews chapter 8, it's still a promise to Israel. By the way, it has to be a new, there has to be an old covenant in order for there to be a new covenant. There has to be an old covenant before there can be a new covenant. And if the old covenant was with Israel, then the new covenant must also be for Israel. Oh, see, there's a little stumper for you. Anyway, that's what they would argue. Third view, there are two new covenants. Charles Ryrie, some of these guys, Pentecost, they'll, they'll say this. There are two new covenants, one with Israel and one with the New Testament church. Okay? That's what they would say. They'll say, well, there's basically two applications of this covenant, if you will. One's for Israel, uh, one's with the New Testament church. You're going to run into problems when we get into Hebrews 12, though, when you go this route. The fourth one, final view in which you can interpret chapter 8, there is one new covenant to be fulfilled as eschatologically. What in the world is that? Eschatologically means, fancy word to mean end time. Isn't it easier to just say the end times? Esch, if you hear somebody say, yeah, I was studying eschatologically. Oh, you're studying the end times. Anyway, there is one new covenant to be fulfilled as eschatologically with Israel in the end times with Israel, but participated in soteriologically, salvation. Why didn't they just say that? Uh, salvation, but participated in salvation by the church today. So in other words, this is that kind of crossover that the covenant will be fulfilled by Israel in the end. The branch that was broken off will be grafted in again when the time of the church age is done. Right now, we're participating in it salvationally. We, it's, a, it's a little bit like two. I will tell you where I'm at. I hold to either view number two or view number four. I actually am more in the four camp than I am the two camp. Because I do think covenant theology and dispensationalism, there is some type of overlap. There is some type of tension in the middle. I was going to demonstrate this with a rope. And if you had two people in the middle holding the rope tight in the middle, the rest you get out there, it's just sort of your way out. I mean, it's just dragging the ground. It's not in either of those places. It's somewhere right here. And I think two is an extreme in one sense. One's an extreme in another sense. But I am either two or four. I'm somewhere, if that makes any sense, Two or four is where I often find myself in this. All right, with that said, conclusion. Woo! All of chapter 8 to say this. Christ is the great high priest. He's a better priest. Christ offers a greater covenant built upon better promises. His covenant's better. Whether you're Israel or whether you're the church, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, the wall of separation is torn down in Christ. And there's only one way to glory, and that's through Him. And He makes that promise. So, Romans 4, 7 and 8, Psalm 31, 32, 1 and 2, if you want to write those down, read them later. But blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Are you forgiven today? Because if you're forgiven today, you're blessed. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man who sinned. The Lord will never count against him. Isn't it good to know your sin will not be counted against you? 
if you're in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Guys, if we didn't get anything else out of this whole study today, this rings so loud and true. We used to be a nation, we used to be a people, God's people, who dedicated their lives to the scriptures, not just the pastor, the pew, ate, drank, slept, meditated on day and night the word of God. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. If you want some more information on that, um, I've got some links you can look up later. That's all I got for you today. <laughs> hey, thank y'all. We made it through this. We're going to get back into the letter of Hebrews next week. Go ahead and start looking at chapter 9. Uh, we got some fun and exciting stuff coming up in, in the book of Hebrews. But thank you for letting us lay this because I'm telling you guys, even if, you, even if it went like this, the whole thing, I'm telling you, we gotta, we got to set the bar higher not lower. Too many churches today are falling into what dispensationalism teaches. There's a great apostasy going to happen in the church where people will set up teachers to tickle their ears. I know none of your ears were tickled. They were too busy going like this. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God which is rich and just inexhaustible. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't matter how deep we go into the well, there is more water to come out. Thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to be our teacher in this time together. And I pray, Lord, in our small groups tonight as we discuss these issues, that you will give liberty, that you will give, um, even, Lord, vigorous debate without division if need be. But, Lord, let the truth shine through. Let your truth rise to the surface. Let iron sharpen iron. And that the end result would be that we draw closer to you. Not that we would become puffed up in knowledge. Lord, please don't let that be the case. Let us become better equipped so that when we're asked, we can give an answer with gentleness and meekness the hope that is within us. Help us to be able to gently, with respect, correct those who stand in opposition. So Father, have your way in our study time as we continue, as you give us time to go through the book of Hebrews. May we lift the name of Christ in all that's done here. And thank you for this church family, Lord, and their desire and their heart to want to know more about you that they might grow in their relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.